Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. So let's see what you all think. Let me just throw a question out there, and you all respond to it. Does God hear the prayers of sinners? Does God hear the prayers of his enemies? He hears everything. Sure. He hears everything. I, there's both sides right there. There it is. There's the debate. I would say here in the senses, and he doesn't listen to the prayers. Ah. Yeah, because he's sovereign, he hears everything. But because he's holy, sometimes that influences his answer. And what we're going to see tonight in chapter 14 of Ezekiel, and you can turn there, is that God is now going to tell Ezekiel that people who have chased foreign gods, which has been a very big issue so far in the book of Ezekiel, people who chase foreign gods who set up their idols before them, they store the idol in their heart, and then he says, and they place the stumbling block, the idol that is the stumbling block to them, they place it before their face, which is interesting language because that implies that it is something of wood or stone, a creation of man's hands, and then they set it in front of them as if it's something that they're praying to or worshiping. Or And so God says those people who have that idol in their heart and set that stumbling block before their own face when they come to a prophet to inquire of me, I'm not going to answer him. And then he says, but what I will do is if they come to a false prophet and ask the false prophet to inquire of me, I'm going to intercede to make sure that the false prophet gives them an answer, and then I'm going to punish both the inquirer and the prophet because neither one of them have followed me. So that's the beginning of chapter 14. God sort of kind of answers the question of, does he hear the request, the asking, the inquiries of his enemies? And his answer is, once you have chased a foreign god, once you have turned your heart away from me, and once you have embraced someone who is not me, especially an idol, Then you come to me through one of my prophets. Once you come to me, I I feel no obligation or compunction to answer you. Because after all, I've already said, I'm going to punish you if you chase after idols. And then you've chased after your idols. And then when you want something to go your way, you come ask me about it. Which is an admission that Yahweh is the only one who can really do anything for you. The wood and the stone idols can't do anything. So when the wood and the stone idols don't sufficiently provide what the people want, they then go to Yahweh, and Yahweh says, I don't have to answer you. Now, as Gladys said, he's sovereign, so he hears everything. He hears the requests. He knows everyone. He knows whether they are a friend of his or an enemy of his. He knows when they inquire of him, whether they're inquiring through a genuine prophet or a false prophet. 
and he knows what's in their hearts and whether or not they have been true and consistent to him or whether they have chased after their idols. So that's all part of his sovereignty. But part of his holiness is you'll have no other gods before me. And if you think you can get away with having other gods before me and then come to me like I'm going to do stuff for you, well, then I don't feel any obligation to do that for you. That's the first part of chapter 14, which really makes sense because the last few weeks we have been seeing not only Israel's following after these foreign gods, we've seen the tendency to look after foreign gods, and we've also seen God through Ezekiel railing against the false prophets who were in Israel. Now in chapter 14, he combines the two and says, if you're chasing foreign gods and you come to a prophet, then I'm going to curse both the prophet and the asker because neither of you are following me. Then at the end of this chapter, he repeats yet again that he is going to destroy Jerusalem. And the natural question would be, but what if there's still somebody technically good, somebody who's trying to live a righteous life? What if there's still somebody who has some qualities, innate qualities in Jerusalem, will you still destroy Jerusalem? Now, that's natural for any Jew to think because Sodom and Gomorrah, before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, what did he do? He took out the righteous people. He took out righteous Lot and Lot's family. So the question would naturally arise, well, if he's going to destroy Jerusalem, take down the walls, if he's going to have the, the Chaldeans raiding it, they're going to destroy the temple, if all of that's going to happen, maybe we could ward it off by saying, but what if there's some good people here? And he's going to answer that question, and his answer is basically going to be, even if Noah and Daniel and Job were in that city they could only save themselves. They couldn't save anybody else because I'm going to destroy this city. So that's a quick overview of, of chapter 14. Chapter 15 is really, really short. Chapter 15 is only eight verses, so we might get to it tonight. And basically, God's going to give a parable and say, if a vine, which is used to create energy, you can burn it in the fire. If a vine is thrown into the fire and it's burned up, once it's burned up, what's it good for? And of course, the answer is uh, nothing. And he's going to say, Jerusalem's that vine. Yeah, I'm going to burn it up. So God's really upset with Israel specifically because they've chased their foreign gods and now he's getting into what the consequences are for chasing those foreign gods. Not only is he not going to respond or answer, but he is going to punish them. He is going to bring his wrath down on them. And even if they're good people, the most they could do is save themselves. They can't save anybody else. So that's chapter 14 and 15 of Ezekiel. So good night and drive safe. And we'll see you again next. Let's read it. Starting at chapter 14, verse 1. Then some elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me. Now at this point, he may be at his house. He may be at the gate. But some elders have come to him because they want to inquire of him. They want to know what does God say about this. At least give us some word of relief here. And when the elders of Israel came to him, the word of the Lord came to me saying, 
Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. So notice they didn't just set them up in their homes. They didn't just set them up in their places of worship. But God says they've set them up in their hearts. Their hearts have been turned to their idols. And then God identifies them as they have put before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. So God sees these idols as causing these men to stumble into sin. So they're not just neutral. That's my point. The idols are not just another approach. It's so common to hear people say, you know, there's only one God, but there's a lot of pathways to that one God. It's so common to hear people say, I'm not Christian, but, but I'm spiritual, and I'm sure that if God is a good God and a fair God, that I'm going to be fine when I die. This idea that there are many different ways that you can approach that one God, God says, no, there's one way to approach me. I prescribe the way that you approach me, and God was very, very specific about it. That's why he set up the law through Moses, why he set up the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the spreading of the blood, the candlestick, and you've got to have the showbread, and there's got to be a sacrificial lamb, and it has to be killed a certain way, and there has to be a high priest who comes in wearing particular clothing, and he has to do certain things in front of me, because God's real, real particular about his worship, about how he's approached, and about his own holiness. And now these people have come to Ezekiel because they think, well, yeah, Yahweh, but it's Yahweh and my idols. It's Yahweh and Baal. It's Yahweh and sending our children through the fire. It's, it's Yahweh and all these different foreign gods from the surrounding nations. They haven't given up completely on Yahweh. They've just made him one of many. God won't have it. You won't have any other gods before me. Second commandment, of course, is don't make graven images. And that's exactly what they've done. So two out of ten broken instantly. Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling blocks of their iniquity. So should I be consulted by them at all? God is almost sarcastic there. God is saying, considering what they're doing, considering how quickly they've broken my word and my commandment, and now they've come to you to inquire of me, should I even answer these people? Of course, the inherent or the implied answer is, no, probably not. Verse 4, therefore, speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols. In other words, if you come ask of me and I answer you, I'm going to answer you in view of the fact that you worship idols. My answer is going to be colored by the fact that I know that your heart is not completely with me. So he's going to say in a minute that those answers are not going to go good for him. 
So, in other words, if you're worshiping foreign gods, if you're setting up idols before your face, if your heart is turned away to these foreign gods, don't go ask Yahweh for stuff because he's going to punish you for your lack of sincerity to him. Therefore, speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols, in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me, through all their idols. So now this is building up. There, there's, a, there's a cumulative effect to what we're reading so far in Ezekiel. And I hope you're not missing it, which is God keeps saying, I'm going to punish Jerusalem. I'm going to take Israel out of your land. I'm going to take you into the Chaldeans and you're going to serve there for 70 years. And then you're going to know that I'm the Lord. And he says things like, I'm going to bring down punishments, which he's going to spell out in a minute, on Jerusalem, on the people that are in Jerusalem. And when I pour out my wrath, then you will know that I'm the Lord. Now he said it again. I'm going to answer you in view of your multiplicity of idols so that I can win your heart back to me. You're going to know that I am the Lord. Look at how God is acting. Because the common marshmallow God theology says that if God wants you, he'll give you stuff and be nice to you. And that he'll give you a bigger house, a better car, healthy children. You can just name it and claim it because God just wants people to to like him like he needs friends. But here you find a God who is willing to punish his own chosen people willing to turn their own requests against them, willing to punish them with a multiplicity of punishments, all for the purpose of showing them that he is God. So he is willing to show his holiness, his righteousness, and his singularity. He's willing to demonstrate that both through his goodness and his grace, but also through his punishment, through his tribulations. And if you forget that, then you'll start creating a God of your own imagination who is only going to bring good into your life. But he's perfectly willing to bring trials and struggles and tribulation into your life as part of the process of proving that he is God. So the reason he's doing this, according to verse 5, is in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their idols. Now, by the way, okay, so here's the law. I'm going to give you the law. Here's my Ten Commandments. I'm going to form a covenant with you. Here's my other rules and ordinances. I'm going to give you all that. I'm going to bring you into relationship with me and form a covenant with you. And then when you don't do the things in my covenant, I'm also going to punish you, and I'm going to keep demonstrating that I am God, and then I'm going to even respond to you in light of your idol so that it will bring your heart back to me so that you will understand, house of Israel, that you're estranged from me and you're going to lay hold of me again and I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to have your heart again. These are all the things we see so far in the Old Testament in God's dealings with Israel. My question is, did any of it work? 
No. None of it worked. In other words, how depraved are humans? Totally depraved. Totally depraved. <laughs> Enough. Yeah, that's, that's one of the five points of Reformation <laughs> theology is, is enough depravity. That's the E in tulip E. Yeah, they're, they're exactly enough depraved that no amount of God's demonstration of himself in his goodness or in his punishment and his tribulation, none of that, whether good or bad, none of that is able to turn people back to himself because human beings by themselves just cannot because of their sinfulness, because of their fallenness, because of their depravity, they just cannot adequately worship God the way he deserves to be worshipped. It's going to take exactly what he does in the New Testament, which is send his spirit to people, to inhabit people, so that by his own spirit, he turns hearts to himself. But he has a long, rich history here of demonstrating time and time again that no matter what he does, it can be miracles, it can be going through the Red Sea, it can be the plagues on Egypt, it can be punishments and it can be good things. It can be a land of milk and honey or it can be the sword and famine till you're eating your own children. It can be as good as it can be, it can be as bad as it can be and still human beings will not turn to God under their own volition. They just can't do it. And that is the, the depth of the fall. I think sometimes people make light of the fall. They don't understand the completion of the fall. And they think that the fall was basically Adam and Eve stubbed their toes. But it is a complete change of nature. From being in constant communion with God to hearing God walking in the cool of the day and hiding from him. Because they knew they were sinners. And they got busy real fast trying to cover up their sin. And so, don't forget that the fall is so complete. And, and again, I think, this is just a little aside. I think if you don't get this part right, you can't get the whole rest of the Bible right. If you don't get the idea that human beings really are enough depraved, then you're never going to understand the concept of election. You understand why God had to elect if you think that there are some good people, if you think that there are some people who deserve to be saved, then you're never going to understand election. And a big fight that Christianity has now is with humanism. Oh, yeah. Humanism reaches none of this. Absolutely has no idea. Oh, I agree. No idea that man is this bad. You see it all the time. You see it in the papers. You see it in the news. Anytime you turn on the news... What is the philosophical presupposition of every news report you ever hear? It is that human beings are generally good, and now we're going to tell you some bad news, but these bad things that happened are an aberration. That's the philosophical underpinning of all news. When, in fact, news should be, hi, a lot of bad stuff happened today. Plenty of bad stuff. But you know what? Inexplicably... Somebody was good today. Somebody did something right today. That would be news. But I'm to the point where, because uh, I'm, I'm always interested. I get up every day and think, what's going on in the world today? But I'm never surprised by it. The more depraved human beings become, the more I go, yeah, yeah, and I'm kind of bored by it now. 
It's like, yep, here comes some more. Yep, here's some more. Okay, that one's really bad. Okay, here's some more depravity. But it perfectly fits with our theology of human beings are enough depraved, totally depraved. (laughs) And if you get that right, you can understand the necessity of not only election, but unconditional election. And that Christ would die for those people he's saving. The rest of the five points make sense only if you comprehend depravity. And I think depravity is being demonstrated throughout the Old Testament as God does both good things and revelatory things and bad things to the same people group, always with the intention of, I'm going to show you that I'm God. And they just don't turn. They don't change. They don't conform. And that's remarkable. You would think, that anybody with half a brain would at some point go, you know what, that God that brought us through the Red Sea, he seems pretty powerful. We should probably stick with him. And yet human beings completely illogically wander off to idols, things that they've made out of stone and wood that their own hands have made, or today they just idolize another person. Not that stone and wood is not an idol, because you see plenty of statues in plenty of Roman Catholic churches that people are also worshiping and genuflecting in front of. They're setting those statues in front of their face, and it's in their hearts. Sometimes they just put them on their dashboard, and they just stick there with a little magnet like a bobblehead, because they're constantly sticking the creations of men in front of their face and placing them in their hearts. What Ezekiel's talking about here is still happening today because the depravity of humans is still happening today. You get that? Mm -hmm. Okay. But this is the thing that humanism totally hides. That is the thing that humanism totally hides. Absolutely. Because humanism keeps telling you, you're good. Up, up, up with people. Yeah, you're good. You're great. Verse 6, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent, which means turn, turn away from your idols, turn your face away from all your abominations for anyone of the house of Israel. Now, this is very much like what he said in verse 4, but you'll notice that this time he adds one particular phrase He adds, or any of the immigrants living among Israel. So even the Gentiles that are living among the Israelites don't get away from this. The rule is the rule. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the immigrants who stay in Israel, who separates himself from me, sets up his idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, And then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself. I, the Lord, will be brought to answer him in my own person. And I shall set my face against that man. See, that's why I said, you don't don't be calling on Yahweh. Because he says he's going to answer you and set his face against you. And I will make that man a sign and a proverb. In other words, I'm going to make him a byword. I'm going to demonstrate my wrath in him so that people talk about it. I'm going to make him a sign, a demonstration, a proverb, and I shall cut him off from among my people. So you will know 
that I am the Lord. Once again, I'm going to cut people off from my chosen people so that you know that I'm the Lord. God just keeps demonstrating. This is what I'm like. These are my rules and they don't change. Even though you're depraved, even though you might be able to justify yourself in your heart or in your mind, I don't change. I don't alter my holiness. I don't change my righteousness. And I said to you a long time ago, no other gods before me. So if you come to me and inquire of me through the prophet, I'm going to set myself against you and make you a demonstration to the house of Israel by the way that I cut you off from the community. I'm going to make you a demonstration of how holy I am. And that's how people are going to know I'm the Lord. It's a much different God than you hear in the happy-go-lucky name acclaimant groups. But, verse 9. I will tell you, there's a little, and we'll talk about it in a moment, there's a little controversy here. But if the prophet is prevailed upon to speak a word, it is I, the Lord, who have prevailed upon the prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. What's clear here is, if the prophet responds, God is going to cut him off too. But when God says, it's I who prevailed on him to answer. The translation prevailed. It's an interesting translation. What he's basically saying is, if somebody who's worshiping foreign gods comes to a false prophet, I'm going to see to it that he's going to go ahead the same way that he had the lying prophets who came to Ahab and lied to Ahab so that he'd go into the war and be killed. The same way, God is perfectly willing to cause people to continue in that iniquity so that they are righteously judged. Verse 10, and they will bear the punishment of their iniquity as the iniquity of the inquirer is, so the iniquity of the prophet will be. In order that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me and no longer defile themselves with all their transgressions. Thus they will be my people, and I shall be their God, declares the Lord God. Okay, so ultimately, at the end of the whole thing, will Israel ultimately be God's people? Will he ultimately be their God again? Yes, yes absolutely. So God's not lying. God's telling the truth. This is going to happen. But before they get to that point, he's going to pour out punishment for the iniquity of both the inquirer and the prophet. They're going to share in their iniquity. They're going to be cut off from Israel. For what reason? So that they will no longer stray from me. And they'll no longer defile themselves with their transgressions. God is going to cut them off to demonstrate that he's God. Now that takes us to verse 12. The subject then changes. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord. Now, he's going somewhere with this. He says, if some foreign nation, some Gentile country, if, if I was going to destroy that country 
the Jews would be pretty okay with it. It'd be like, well, yes, those are our enemies, those are Gentiles, at least it's not Israel. But he's making the point that when he does that, the same way as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, if he destroys that country and there are any righteous people in it, that's not going to stop him from destroying it. If, if Daniel and Job and Noah, the three people who God chose to refer to as righteous men, wouldn't you love to be one of them? Wouldn't you love to know that when God has to think about righteous people, he thought of you? Mm-hmm. He thought of Noah and Daniel and Job. Noah and Job make sense. Noah and Job, we can understand historically. Job's probably the oldest book in the Old Testament. He's probably a contemporary of Abraham. And so he's a good example. People would know about Job within the Hebrew communities. Noah, they know. Worldwide flood, Noah. Notice, by the way, that God confirms that Job and Noah existed. They're real people. As far as God's concerned, that happened. He didn't write it in his word as a parable or as a good story for you to just learn a lesson from, but it's not real, genuine stuff. He treats them as real, living, genuine people. But Daniel, don't forget, was in Babylon. And Daniel's reading Jeremiah to find out about the 70 weeks. Daniel is a contemporary of Ezekiel. And yet God, knowing what Daniel has done and is going to do, Daniel is picked out by God as a righteous person who's among you. Man, if you're Daniel, you got to feel good about that. Because Daniel's not even done yet. Daniel's still in Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar. Hasn't even gotten to the Belshazzar stuff yet. He's still going through all that stuff, and God, knowing he's there in Babylon, still refers to him as the righteous one. That's pretty impressive. So God's point is, Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job, these are righteous people, were in the midst of that Gentile city, by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves. They can't deliver the city. Once God's judgment is against that city, even those righteous people in the city could only deliver themselves. So then he says, verse 15, If I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they depopulated it, and it became desolate so that no one would pass through it because of the beasts. Though these three men were in the midst of it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either the sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the country would be desolate. Or, If I should bring a sword on that country and say, let the sword pass through the country and cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in the midst of it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver it. They could not deliver either their sons or their daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I should send a plague against that country and pour out my wrath in blood on it, to cut off man and beast from it. Even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in the midst, as I live, declares the Lord, they could not deliver either their son or their daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. Notice that God refers to these now as his four severe judgments in verse 21. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem. Then he lists them, the sword, 
the famine, the wild beasts, and the plague. As far as God is concerned, those are his four severe judgments. But that's not the only place he says that. Somebody go to Revelation 6 for just a moment. Actually, let's all do that. We've got time. Keep your finger there in Ezekiel and go to Revelation 6 for a moment. We're going to start right at verse 1. I'm really gunning for verse 8, but we'll start at verse 1 because you're going to see now that God is going to lay out those same fierce judgments. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. And I looked and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. And another, a red horse went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to him to take peace away from the earth and that men should slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. Verse five. And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard, as it were, the voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, an ashen horse and he who sat on it, the name Death and Hades, was following with him, and authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to do these four things, to kill with the sword, to kill with famine, to kill with pestilence, and to kill by the wild beasts of the earth. So God, who doesn't change, all the way back here in Ezekiel, spells out what the four judgments are. They're the same four judgments that he brings up in the book of Revelation. Go back to Ezekiel. God is not going to change. In the end of time, when he punishes the world, when he pours out his wrath on the world, it's going to take the same form. It's going to take death and bloodshed by the sword, by the famine, by wild beasts, and by sickness, by plagues. Verse 21 of Ezekiel 15. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, a lack of food, wild beasts, and plague to cut off men and beasts from it. So in other words, what God is saying here is, if I were to destroy a Gentile city, even if there were righteous people in it, they could only deliver themselves, I would still pour out my judgment on it. I would do that to the Gentile nations because the Gentile nations are sinners. And all the Jews would agree. All the Israelites would agree. That's right, they're not in covenant. That's right, they don't have the revelation of God. That's right, so if God did that, well then go God. But now he says, how much more a severe judgment is going to be poured out on Jerusalem, the sword, the famine, the wild beast, the plague to cut off man and beast. He says, when I do that, even then, if there's a righteous man in Jerusalem, 
the most he can hope for is that he would deliver himself. That's not going to deliver the city. So God is yet again saying, the punishment's coming. The judgment's coming. The destruction is coming. Yet behold, verse 22, survivors will be left in it who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. That's right. He's going to bring people into the bondage among the Chaldeans. And behold, they are going to come forth to you, and you will see their conduct and actions, and then you will be comforted for the calamity which I have brought against Jerusalem for everything which I have brought upon it. Now, there's a couple different ways to read that verse. That idea of you will see their conduct and actions some commentators say, well, then these are the righteous people. These are the good people, and their conduct and their actions were righteous. And so that's going to be a comfort to the survivors who are in Chaldea when they see that God did not pour out the punishment on the, the good folks, the righteous folks, given the, the context of what he said. But let me read something to you here. I forget which commentary this is out of because I didn't list it here. Some have felt that the phrase conduct and actions that Ezekiel was referring to were the righteous deeds of this remnant which prompted God to spare them. But Ezekiel was probably referring to the wicked ways of the captives. The word for conduct was used 35 times in Ezekiel's book to refer to people's evil actions. The word for actions is used eight times in the book always to refer to the sinful deeds of Israel. And these two words, conduct and actions, occur together seven times in Ezekiel's book. And in every occurrence, the words convey sinful actions. So those who question the severity of God's judgment would recognize its justice when they observed the evil character of the captives that are brought in from Jerusalem. They would be forced to admit that these people did deserve to be punished and that God was not being unjust. So I think that's a, a more consistent reading of it, that God is going to spare some because he's going to keep himself a remnant, but he's not going to keep them because they're the good ones. He's not going to keep the remnant to demonstrate that these are the righteous ones who deserve to be saved. He's going to keep a remnant to himself because he's gracious. And because he's keeping his covenant, he's faithful to the things he has said. And the people who are in Chaldea who see the conduct and actions of those people and see that they're not good and they're not righteous are going to understand that those people deserve the punishment they were under so that it justifies God in punishing them. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yet behold, survivors will be left in it who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Behold, they are going to come forth to you, and you will see their conduct and actions, and then you will be comforted for the calamity. There's that idea of then you're going to understand that God judged them rightly. You're going to be comforted for the calamity which I have brought against Jerusalem, for everything which I have brought upon it. Then they will comfort you when you see their conduct and actions, for you will know that I have not done in vain whatever I did to it, declares the Lord God. In other words, God is not just doing it out of his own self-vanity. He's not just doing it to demonstrate his own capriciousness. He's going to demonstrate, hey, he's going to demonstrate that it had to be done. 
And so that's going to be a confirmation for the people that are in Chaldea, especially the people who are believing that the folks in Jerusalem are probably the ones that God has spared. We've been talking about that the last few weeks. God is not sparing the ones that are left in Jerusalem. He's also going to punish them and bring them into Chaldea. And then there's going to be, once they're all brought into Babylon, there's going to be the destruction of the wall and the temple and all that. So then God says, chapter 15, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any wood of a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Throughout the Bible, you will notice that God refers to Israel as the vine. That's typical language that God uses to describe Israel. So now how are you going to tell me, he says, that the vine is any better than the rest of the wood? Can wood be taken from it to make anything? Or can men take a peg from it on which they can hang any vessel? The answer obviously is no. If it has been put into the fire for fuel and the fire has consumed both of its ends and the middle part has been charred, is it then useful for anything? Behold, while it is intact, it is not made into anything. In other words, think about vines for just a moment. If you're hanging a heavy thing on the wall, are you going to use a vine? No. You're going to use some piece of wood that you can make a peg out of, something sturdy. And so that's God's point, was that even while it was intact, it typically wasn't used to use it as a peg to hang anything on. So he says, behold, while it's intact, it is not made into anything. How much less when the fire's consumed it and it's charred? Can it still be made into anything? So God is saying by parable here, you know that a vine isn't a real useful plant. What if you burn it first? Then how useless is it? And he's saying Israel is just like that. Not only were you completely dependent on me in the first place, not only did you have no power authority within yourself independent, but now I'm even putting you through the fire, which makes you even less capable of being good for anything. Verse 6, therefore, thus says the Lord God, as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I have set my face against them. Though they have come out of the fire, yet the fire will consume them. Then you will know, here he goes again, then you will know that I am the Lord. When? When I set my face against you. So here's God yet again demonstrating his righteousness and his holiness and his aseity and his singularity by the things that he's pouring out in judgment against the very people who he's chosen to be in covenant with. He is perfectly willing to demonstrate himself in the good and the bad because his righteousness and his judgment and his holiness deserve a defense. I will set my face against them. Though they have come out of the fire, yet the fire will consume them. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus I will make the land desolate because they have acted unfaithfully, declares the Lord God. So there's the happy-go-lucky message for this evening. 
That's the up, up, up with people kind of message for the evening. It's not exactly a dance and sing message. What you're going to see as we continue, and this is why these early chapters are just so important, is that once God has declared his anger and his wrath at Israel and at Jerusalem, once he has demonstrated the severity of his judgment, now that he has repeatedly explained himself and what he's doing and pours out this separation and this judgment on these people, just about the time that you're ready to say, well, then God has to be done with Israel, then the letter changes to I'm going to keep a remnant for myself and I'm going to reestablish Israel. And like I keep saying, Ezekiel ends with a new temple and God being among his people again. And ultimately he is their God and they are his people. But this is the process. This is the method that God is using to demonstrate himself to these people so that they know that he is a separate and distinct and unique and high and holy God, not like their idols, not like their wooden stone, but a God who you should not offend, a God who you should not come up against because he's perfectly willing to defend himself. And yet, faithful to every promise and every covenant he ever made. Remarkable. It's good to know that that's what God's like. Keeps every word. Keeps every word. You know, I keep saying, and I'm going to say it again, I've been saying it on Sunday mornings since we've been talking about James. I've used it as an example. The fact is the Old Testament isn't about us, but Paul says it's written for us, for our admonition, for our learning, so that we can understand things. As we read these early chapters of Ezekiel, I really hope that you're understanding the kind of God you're dealing with. Even though it's not about us, it's definitely for us to learn that if there is not somebody standing in the gap between you and that God, he'll pour out this kind of punishment on you because you're just as guilty as they were. You're certainly no better. You're certainly completely depraved. And so you need desperately somebody to stand between that righteous and holy God and you and your sinfulness. And that is the absolute necessity, not just importance, but necessity of Christianity, of Christ, of the intercessor, and of him absorbing the wrath of God in your place. That's why the Christian message is so important. It has very little to do with, well, now I've accepted Jesus, so I'm going to get a I'm going to get a better this and a better that, and I'm always going to be healthy, and my kids are going to be pretty, and I'm going to... It's not about that. It's about the fact that this God will judge you if you don't have Christ pleading your case. So there's a lot to learn from Ezekiel. Yeah? Yes. Okay, then. Questions? Is the, uh, the example of using, uh, the reason for using the example of Noah, perhaps in this case, um, to show the degree of anger in saying that if Noah was here, that even his sons and daughters wouldn't be spared, whereas in the flood, he did spare the sons and daughters. So they, I mean, obviously they would be very familiar with that example. Yeah. But I think they look at that and say, wow, how much more angry is he now with yeah. us that he's saying in this case he wouldn't do that? Even in Sodom and Gomorrah, when he took out Lot, 
he took out Lot's family with him. And obviously his wife wasn't all that righteous because she turned back. So, yeah, I I agree that it could be a demonstration that in, in the past God was gracious enough to take that person and their family. Now they wouldn't even be able to save their family. Pretty severe. God ain't playing around. He's being real severe. And also Job. Didn't Job end up sacrificing for his three friends? In this case, no. I'm not going to use Job to help the three friends. The punishment is coming. Job alone could be saved for his righteousness. So yeah, there's, there's some credibility to that. Okay, I think I'm all talked out. I think I'm done. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.